Thank you very much, Luke, for a very kind and generous introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, and distinguished dais guests, my name is Harold and I'm an alcoholic. I was pleased when uh, Joe invited me to come and address this gathering. I was invited once uh, years ago by Luke, I don't remember exactly when, but the annual conference was held on the University of Iowa campus at that time. And I believe I was living in Iowa, or in uh, Washington, D.C. at the time, and was a member of the United States Senate. As most of you have heard from time to time who have heard about me, Luke said I was involved in the transportation industry. Uh, to put it factually, I'm an impaired truck driver. <laughs> Not too many of us made it to the office of governor or the Senate. Well, we were known to frequent other places of high renown. My career began, as he said, in 1922, uh, born on a cold winter morning in the small town in northwest Iowa called Ida Grove. My parents were farming up in the northwest part of Ida County on a little farm known as the Sand Hill Farm because very little grew there. My mother had gone to Ida Grove the day before to stay with her in-laws, my grandparents, because her time was close to deliver and the doctor wanted her in the proximity of a hospital. And her time came during the night and she went to the hospital and gave birth to me early in the morning. My father rising early in the morning and the frost and no telephones and fed the hogs and the cattle and broke the ice out of the water troughs and went to crank the old Model T Ford to go to town, pulled the spark down and the gas lever down, went out in front and labored till he was worn out trying to get one bark out of the engine. Finally it did bark and it kicked back and broke his arm. And on the way to town driving with one arm hanging and getting in there, he arrived late to find out that he had indeed fathered a second son and uh, his brother had come to visit and he'd been to see my mother and he'd looked upon me, I weighed less than five pounds, was born with jaundice, was not much to look at and my uncle said exactly that when he visited my mother and saw me. He said, he ain't much to look at, is he? <laughs> well, my mother lived till she was 87 and never did forgive him for that statement. <laughs> she had decided before my birth and during gestation what I was going to be. And she devoted most of my life growing up manipulating, managing, and directing to accomplish her goals in my life. <laughs> a loving mother, devout in prayer. My parents came from the southeastern part of Kentucky, the Appalachia Mountains. 
They left that region so their children would have a better opportunity to education than they had. My mother only went four years to school. My father some more than that. When she was 12, she was working, as they said in those days, laying out the dead, and as a midwife, delivering children, and serving in the best way she could, and church being the center of hill country life, that was what she was devoted to. And naturally, my upbringing and my heritage was founded in hill country philosophy. The fact that there was little education didn't mean there was poor intelligence at all. In fact, there was keen intelligence, complete dedication, devout faith, and a total belief in miracles. So when my drinking began to develop in my teenage years, and now as we talk about the genetic possibilities of alcoholism, in those days no one was even calling alcoholism as a disease, so back in the 30s when I began to drink, the problem was a question of morality. It was treated, treated with punitive action if it was treated at all. Families disowned and didn't talk about the relatives who drank too much, who became problems, and who rapidly faced the issues. So that was the era that I was born into. I was a fine athlete as a young youngster. I astounded people by growing out of that small beginning into a giant for my time. Became an all-state football player, a state championship discus thrower at the age of 15. A pretty darn good musician, sought after by a lot of colleges and universities for both athletics and music scholarships. No one in my family that I could find or knew of had gone to college in recent generations, so for me to step out to enter a university or college was a breaking a barrier in our family structure. But I did. What I didn't know, nor did anyone else, that the disease of alcoholism also had taken root with my first drink at a high school dance. Now, the only defense mechanism that was working in my behalf was my mother's prayers that I would quit drinking. No one understood, including me, what was happening to me. My drinking never stopped when the other kids did. I was wild. I was arrogant. I displayed rare forms of insanity at times, most of which I won't bore you with tonight in a long story of a lead, or war stories of early years of struggle and drunkenness. I was a binge drinker. After a year, I, in college, I married and then dropped out of college and entered the army was the only person I ever knew who went in the army a private, came out a private, and never got a promotion in three years. <laughs> I was a combat soldier, a Browning automatic rifleman, and I did see a lot of combat. Started in special services unit attached to the 16th Infantry of the 1st Division. From there were the 1st Battalions of the American Rangers. From there, the 2nd and 41st Commando Troops under the command of Colonel Churchill. 
and then back to the Rangers on the Anzio beachhead, and most of my combat was in Africa, Sicily, and Italy. My drinking progressed steadily and rampantly and wildly. By the time I was discharged from the Army in 1945, I had been in jail in six states, I had been court-martialed in the Army, I had been disciplined many times, and my drinking was running rampant and wild, and I was afraid, and I didn't know what was happening, and neither did anyone else. And when I went back home to Northwest Iowa, coming back from overseas, I was more afraid to go back to a young wife with two small daughters who I hadn't seen in years and one daughter who I'd never seen who had been born after I left the army than I had ever been facing an enemy in combat. I tried the best I knew how. I had a great deal of pride and I worked at any job I could get. My first job was repairing household appliances, washing machines, toasters and such in the basement of a hardware store. Then I got a job driving a milk truck, cream truck, and worked a year at that, then in filling stations and whatever else I could come. My life's ambition at that point was to be able to save enough money to buy a used truck of my own and start a garbage route in Ida Grove, Iowa. That may seem funny to you for a man who later became governor and a senator, but to me it was a high goal and a high ambition at that time. You see, my dreams weren't very high and my fears were deep-seated. And my family was growing and my family was disrupted and no one understood me and I didn't understand myself. And in the binges of drinking, I would think about dying and I felt the guilt that we now call post-combat syndrome over the fact that I had lived and so many of my comrades had died. And I felt guilty for living and didn't understand why. And as this continued, finally, it progressed far enough that my wife took the children and left. And alone one night on a cold February night again in 1952, I climbed into a bathtub naked with a shotgun, placed the barrel in my mouth, my thumb on the trigger, lay on my back and adjusted the gun so it would fit and blow the top of my head out when I pulled the trigger. Wanting to die more than I wanted to live, I lay there trembling and shaking and filled with fear. Saying, my God, what happened? What went wrong? You see, I didn't know anything about alcoholism, or Alcoholics Anonymous, or anything else. I thought I was guilty of every immorality and every sin and every violation against society and God that man could create. I felt totally worthless. And finally, in destitution, I thought I should try one final time to pray to a God that I no longer believed existed. So I crawled out of that bathtub and I knelt by it with my head on a cold steel rim, alone. And I couldn't pray. I just trembled and shook and finally cried out, God help me, I can't help myself. And I fell to the floor and tears finally came. 
And I wept and I shook till there were no more tears and then just great dry sobs tore my body. And finally it all stopped. And I felt a sense of peace coming over me. And something deep inside me seemed to be saying to me that God had heard that prayer, that cry of agony, that cry of despair, and somehow would help me. And I slowly got to my knees and tried to pray again, and I couldn't. But that was the beginning. That was a beginning. That was a spiritual experience for me, the first one I'd had in my life, really, that meant anything. And I'd been in church every week. I'd been raised there. I had received my little white Bible and gone to catechism and made a profession of faith before the congregation, which I didn't really understand, didn't know what it meant. I had done all the things that a child raised in a church home was supposed to do. I'd never been neglected. I didn't have those things to cope with. But I didn't understand. What I had believed in was a God that I feared. One who sat on a great throne somewhere in the heavens with a list of judgment for violating and sins that I had committed. And who, when I had committed a sin, had but one mission in all of creation, that was condemn me and to damn me to eternal hell fire forever. So my fear of God grew and my despair grew and my lack of understanding grew along with it. Well, I wish you were right, Luke, that I never drank again, but that isn't true. I found my way to Alcoholics Anonymous then through a friend or two who had tried for a couple of years prior to that to tell me I had a problem and I wouldn't listen. But I went and asked and I went to a meeting and the first meeting I went to in those days they had a chip ceremony and they tried to get me a chip and I wouldn't take it. I told them I didn't have a problem like they had. I was just trying to find out what I was drinking so much for. Well, they told me to come back next week. See, this was 40 miles from where I lived. Meetings weren't just around the corner in those days. Well, I went back home, and every time I'd turn around, one of the guys in AA would be standing there saying, come on, let's have a cup of coffee. I finally decided they had assigned one another to follow me that week. <laughs> Make damn sure I didn't get out of their sight. And by the time the next meeting night rolled around, they were there in the car saying, let's go. And I said, I don't think I will this week. I'm sure I'm not like you guys. One of them said, you know, do you think you can whip me? I said, I don't know. He said, well, you're going to have to if you don't get in the car and go to the meeting. <laughs> now, that isn't known as gentle persuasion or come to a meeting by attraction. <laughs> to me, it was get your ass to a meeting or get the hell beat out of you. <laughs> I got in the car and went to a meeting. And I listened again, and I refused to chip again. And I went home again, and I didn't have coffee with them all week, but I didn't drink either. One of them told me, he said, you may not quit, but we'll screw it up for you till you don't enjoy it anymore. 
they were succeeding. And I'm sure they were telling stories all the time about this dumb so-and-so, you know, who was smarter than they were. And here I was, a tremendous success. I was by then driving a hog truck. <laughs> really making my way up in the world. So I kept, they kept dragging me to meetings, and finally I decided to take a chip to get rid of the bastards. <laughs> I figured by then they would leave me alone, so I took the chip. And they made the presentation about if you ever take a drink, first take a dime or take, go to the phone and call one of us. And if you finally decide you want to drink, just throw the chip away and go ahead and drink, you know. If you want to drink, that's your business. If you want to quit, that's ours. And I said, that isn't the way it's been working. You guys have been making it your business to make damn sure I don't drink. Well, now, I've heard all these gentle stories about AA since then. But let me tell you, on Northwest Iowa in those early days, it was any way you could get them. <coughs> Sometimes it wasn't by attraction or persuasion. It was by almost brute force. Well, I hung in there, Luke, for two years and abstained. I didn't enjoy much of it. After about 14 months, I decided I knew all there was to know about it, and I went out to dry up the world. And everybody I knew that drank as much as I did, I made mad at me for 40 miles around. <laughs> didn't get any of them to go to a meeting, but I got all of them mad at me. And then at the end of two years, I woke up in a jail down in Kissimmee, Florida, 1,700 miles from home. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I didn't have a slip. I don't believe there is such a goddamn thing as a slip. I had been thinking about drinking for two years. And in the back of my head, I had never really accepted the fact that I was an alcoholic. And I had gone along with everything they told me, and I had pretended, and I had played, and I had proved to myself beyond any reasonable doubt that I couldn't be an alcoholic because I hadn't drank for two years. And I planned to drink and show those bastards. Well, as I woke up sick and shaking and suffering and wondering what I had done and not sure... I couldn't believe it. When I found out I hadn't killed someone, I was grateful. To try and shorten it up from there on, when I got out of jail and posted the bond and got the hell out of Florida as fast as I could, and headed back for Iowa and all the way back in my beat-up car, I was trying to decide whether to go back and lie to those guys and pretend nothing ever happened. And that was awfully appealing to me. Because I lied very easily in those days. But I finally decided, you know, that it's time to either face up to the fact that you are an alcoholic and quit playing games and get with it. It was again February two years later. And I haven't had a drink, Luke, since February 1954. So...
I didn't know then that my life would change dramatically, but it did. I went through all the things Luke said. First, I ran for the State Commerce Commission. I was elected to that in 1958. I ran for the Office of Governor in 1960 and was defeated in the primary. I ran in 62 and was elected, much to the surprise of everyone, including myself. Everyone told me that I shouldn't run, that all my escapades, my drunks, my periods in jail would boil out to the open, in the open and defeat me. I believed that I should run. Something deep inside me was causing me to push and go ahead, and I did. And I was successful in running. And nothing was ever written about me being in AA or attending AA meetings until after I was elected governor the first time. Then slowly, here and there, something would drop into some columnist's column about me being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wasn't talking about it. I wasn't saying anything about it. And I started getting off letters from the central office to keep my damn mouth shut. <laughs> and I'd write them back and tell them I had. And we got on a first-name basis after a few dozen letters. Then in 1963, an international magazine of those days, known as by the name of Look, decided to do a story about the alcoholic governor of Iowa. They sent one of their top reporters out, a man named Fletcher Knable, who had authored a book along with another fine writer entitled Seven Days in May, that some of you may recall. I didn't know it at the time, but Fletcher Knable's wife was an alcoholic. And he came to see me and informed me he was going to write the story and he would appreciate my cooperation. And I said, I can't cooperate with a story like that. And I wish you wouldn't write it. And he said, well, I'm not here to negotiate whether I write the story or not. I'll write it. But I am here to say that if you cooperate, perhaps it'll be written much more accurately and much more truthfully than if you do not. Be more fact than rumor. I didn't know what to do. So I tried to cooperate to the best of my ability. And he spent months in doing background information, following me around, taking pictures, and everywhere I went, around the nation, around my state, everything that he could. The story was supposed to come out in April. 1964, or 65, excuse me. But international news events kept kicking it out of the magazine. And it didn't come out till the 1st of October. And I was in the midst of a re-election campaign. An election was on November 6th that year. And when the magazine hit the stands in Iowa, it had a special white flap on the front cover saying, read all about the governor of Iowa who's an alcoholic. <laughs> How would you like to stand for election three weeks after that hit the stands in your state? I went home that noon and told my wife to pack. We'd be moving in January. <laughs> Got sick at my stomach, developed diarrhea rapidly, 
Didn't know whether to go back to the office or not. Then thought, oh, what the hell, I might as well go in a big way as a small way. You know the alcoholic thinking. <laughs> so I went back, and I bluffed my way through it to the best of my ability. Well, that was just the beginning. I won that election, I might tell you. But it started a series of events because the story was filled with a number of errors. And they followed me. And one of the first letters I got after the magazine hit early in December was from the secretary of an AA group somewhere in Florida. And if you're here tonight, brother, maybe we can discuss it later. <laughs> it started out, Dear Governor Hughes, I hope you're drunk by now, you son of a bitch. And it got better as it went on. <laughs> and my staff made sure it was on the top of the pile of correspondence on my office desk when I went in that morning. None of them had guts enough to come through the door, but there it lay. And I read it. And I thought about it. And I thought, boy, I'm going to call that SOB up and tell him off, but I didn't know he at least signed his name. So I thought I'd wait 24 hours and think about it. And then I waited 48 hours, and then I waited 72 hours, and I waited about a week. Finally, I wrote him instead of calling him. And I'd have to paraphrase it, but it went something like this. My dear friend and fellow alcoholic, I would appreciate it very much if you would please share with me, who obviously haven't attained the degree of success in the program that you have, how have you have attained such a high degree of serenity in your own personal life? <laughs> I need your help. I never heard from him again. But I did hear from the central office in New York about a thousand times in the next few months. But one thing happened from that that neither I nor Fletcher nor anyone else could think of, and that was that I began getting letters from all over the world from people who were in trouble and from members of families of people who were in trouble. And a lot of them were saying different things. Some said, if a man like you can do what you have done and survive and face life the way you have, I'm going to have the guts to try. Others were saying, how can I get a member of my family, my wife, my husband, my child? How can I find Alcoholics Anonymous? People called me. The strangest calls. I got a collect call from Nairobi one time. <laughs> I'll show you how dumb we are. I took it. <laughs> and there was an alcoholic woman in Nairobi wanting to know where she could get help. And I didn't know of any place but London. And I sent her to London, and I'll be damned if she didn't go there. <laughs> and she got sober. And for 19 years, we wrote to each other, one letter a month and had an AA meeting together and she's still sober right now. 
I should tell you about the time I met her in Tokyo. It's crazy things happen to all of us. I'm over there at a governor's conference. And we have a state dinner that evening, and I get this call from this woman with this gorgeous British accent. Now, here I am 12,000 miles from home, you know. This is tempting. <laughs> and this voice says, I need an AA meeting, and I need you to speak. And I, she started telling me about the bad AA she was getting in Tokyo. And I, the curiosity, I think, was piqued enough in me that I lied to the people and said I was having great difficulty and I couldn't go to the dinner that night. And she said she would pick me up in the lobby of the hotel and we would go to a meeting. So I said, how will I know you? She said, you won't, but I'll know you. I have saw the pictures in the Look magazine and I'll know who you are. Just stand in the lobby. I'm standing there at the lobby at the pointed hour and a great big long black limousine pulls up at the door. And the most gorgeous lady I had seen in 20 years got out of it with a leopard skin coat, jewelry all over, beautiful, a vision. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, surely not. <laughs> she walked in the door, looked around the lobby, focused on me, came directly at me. I almost wet my pants. <laughs> Sure enough, it was her. We go out and get in the car, we go down the back alleys of Tokyo, you can't believe it. We're in the car about three or four blocks from the hotel, and she says, if you know we were both drinking, you know where we'd be headed, don't you? And I said, where? I wanted her to put it in words. <laughs> and she did. <laughs> I said, we really need a meeting. Where is it? Well, we went to the meeting, and they introduced me to speak. And I'm generally a very spiritual speaking, and after I'd said so much about God, I couldn't even think about violating her chastity on the way back to the hotel. A higher power does work in mysterious ways. Really developed a long and wonderful relationship. We went to another hotel that night to have a sandwich and coffee and discuss how she might work the program in some ways to find better elements of sobriety. And we did, and we're sitting there. A dance band is playing, people are dancing, and I look at the other side of the room, and there sits the nine governors that I was supposed to have been at a state dinner with. I swear before God Almighty, and I almost get under the table when Governor Hoff of Vermont stands up and says, Hi, Governor Hughes, clear across the room. And they all applauded. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Talk about a drunk's luck. <laughs> I can't lie and get by with it on a bet. Anyway, it all innocent was innocent. And it developed into a two decades of friendship that is ongoing. She's now living in southern Spain, sober, happy, with a fulfilling life. And in many ways, I considered that if one person found a way out of the hell that we all lived in for a while, that any sacrifice I might have made would have been worth it. Because I've never forgotten the pain and the suffering and the loneliness, the fear and the agony that I had so many years, the violation of not only God's commandments and my marriage vows and the laws of the land and everything that I personally believed in, and the utter despair and hopelessness that I felt that was gradually restored by men and women like you, who are the eyes and hands and feet of voice of God. And I will always believe that in this late century, in the history of the human race, that this disease that went condemned and damned and we died in the byways and froze in the frozen tundras, and lived in the prisons and the jails and were abandoned and forgotten by society and eventually abandoned by our own families and those who loved us the most because they couldn't find an answer. But that power that I choose to call God spoke to us. I'm pleased that this organization is young enough City and Sioux City back to Storm Lake where I found it in 1952 and to learn the mission that those men carried like zealots like Dr. Sam Shoemaker proclaimed at the 25th anniversary of AA in one of the greatest sermons I believe that was ever preached of the commitment and the will and the meaning that was with it and the hope that went with it and when, a year later, after that story, I was in the midst of another campaign and my attorney general was my opponent and three days before the election, in a statewide television debate, he stood up and said that I was a liar and that I had been in jail long after I had said I was sober. Because like Luke, the story made the same mistake he made tonight and declared my sobriety date in 1952. And that... For that reason, I was untrustworthy. And since he had never had any problem with alcohol in his life, why should I be given credit for having it? And he made a horrendous appeal to the people of my state about the lack of character that I had and the untrustworthiness that was mine. And when I was introduced to speak following him, I said, you know, the charges that the Attorney General has made about me being in jail in Florida are true. But it was not an intentional lie, it was an accident that the story appeared that way. I said, what the Attorney General does not know, apparently, that I was in jail in five other states as well. <laughs> and that I was also court-martialed in the Army. And he's going to have to hurry like hell to find out where in the next three days. <laughs> but that all happened a long time ago. 
Well, I don't think is of any interest to the people of Iowa at this particular time because I have demonstrated to you that I abstain from all alcoholic beverages and chemicals of any sort that aren't essential to preserve life and health and order. And that I have conducted the officers, been obedient to the Constitution, and worked in the best interest of the people of this state and this union all of my life. And I was elected, as Luke suggested, with the greatest plurality that any political candidate ever received in the history of that state and more than any has received to this date. The people of my state believed in me regardless of my alcoholism. I believe that we have come far enough that we don't need to be apologetic, but in this fellowship, which is anonymous, that we respect one another's anonymity. Many times I've had a physician come to me and seek help and say that they practice in a community where that if it's known they have difficulty, they will be, you know, unable to continue their practice and live, and that they want to find a way to sobriety and to abstinence away and to go back, and they do, and we should respect all of that. We can abstain, we can grow, and we can become what our greatest dreams believe that we can become. You know, I always believed that the most arrogant people on earth were physicians, and especially psychiatrists. <laughs> I never had a kind word in my mind or body for a psychiatrist for many years, and seldom did I think well of a physician. Next to God, they thought they were. Oh, that's a mistake. They thought they were God. <laughs> now, an alcoholic physician <laughs> that's beyond the wildest imagination. <laughs> I'm really pleased to see all of you in one room. What a chance to get even. I'll just have to resist it. <laughs> I'm glad for all of you. I know of no singular group of people that we need more than we need you, ladies and gentlemen, in this field. It's been a long way since Bill and Bob sat and talked in 1935. I don't know that without the power of God it could have happened to bring a stockbroker and a physician together. What an irony. What luck, if you can call it luck. What humor. And then to cap it off, at this day, late date, when this wonderful organization, preserved by men like Rook Reed, has grown to the strength it has when you have an almost thousand present in the audience tonight to let a lowly impaired truck driver in address the next kin of God, the physician. <laughs> the humor of this occasion must surely strike all of you higher.
You know, and they worry. When I was seeking the nomination of my party for the presidency, the press used to ask me constantly about my problems of alcoholism. And I used to constantly tell them that it would be nice to have someone in the White House who didn't drink. <laughs> I want to tell you, when I was elected governor, the first meeting that was held in the governor's mansion after my first election was my home AA group from Ida Grove, Iowa. I helped start that group in 1956, and four of us sat down together. We listened to one another so much that we got so sick of hearing one another's story that we could hardly bring ourselves to go to a meeting. <laughs> and we begged people to come in and lead meetings for us from any distance. And we would go any distance to help others so they would come back and help us. And when I go back up there, even yet to this day, people come from a hundred miles around to take a good look at me. Because my anonymity was about as secret as the noon whistle in Idy Grove. And people knew that I was a drunk. But you know something? It was about the same when I was drinking. I had no anonymity. Everyone in town knew I was a drunk. Everyone knew I was a liar. Everyone knew I was untrustworthy. And I'm happy that my mother lived long enough and my father to see me become governor of Iowa and to me see me speak the truth and to hear me express my faith in the manner in which they had raised me and to come to understand that alcoholism is a disease and somehow they had not failed in their life in what happened to me. I thank all of you for giving me this opportunity to share with you tonight. As I was telling Al Marley, who I've known for many years and who testified before my committee, as did Luke, when I was in the Senate, this is probably, maybe, the last speech of this kind I give. I do not intend to continue on the speaking circuit in the future very much, if I do at all. And I don't know of a better place to sundown, really, than here and to remember all the wonderful things that have happened in my life. And none of them could have happened without AA. I owe my life to Alcoholics Anonymous. I owe my life to the men, and I say men, ladies, because there were no women then in Northwest Iowa in AA. I met one two years after I'd been in AA. And I finally found out that women drank as much as we did. Now, I'd been trying to get them drunk all my life, <laughs> but most of them had resisted. I'm glad to know now that we have an equal sharing. I'm also glad, in these late years of my life, that God has given me a partner to share with again, and I'd like to introduce my wife, Julie, to you. Julie, would you stand up? Thank you. Thank you all.